0: Good morning, everyone. Um, my name is Alita Friesen, and I. This is my third time to be here, so uh, I, it's officially been decided. I do not need an introduction, <laughs> which is fine. That's great. Um, this, you know, I feel like when you you're invited somewhere once, it's like such an honor and a joy to come back a second time. It's like wow, but a third time. You are family. That's how I feel. Like we are just family now, and I love it. Thank you for having me back. I was so excited when Derwin emailed me and invited me, and yeah. And I have to tell you, I think I maybe shared this with you before, but anytime I come to or I get to invited to speak somewhere, which I said, like I said, it's always such an honor and a joy. um, My husband always just prays for me before I leave, and kind of just it's part of the process and sort of like commissions me. And so, but every time I come here. Um, usually he's just like, you know, whatever, it's just a pretty simple prayer, but something like comes over him when he prays for me to go to Hillside, and he just doesn't even really pray for me, he mainly prays for you guys, he's just like, and Lord, just bless Hillside, and he just goes to town, and he did it again today, and I was like, man, what is the deal, so he's never been here, he was gonna come today, but um, we've got four kids, and you know, at least half of them are out of sorts on a Sunday morning. So anyways, they're they're home today. But uh, thank you again for having me. So excited to be here with you. And uh, I want to welcome you to what I believe is one of... Not only um, one of the most important weeks in the church calendar, but also one of the most fascinating weeks. I think this is one of the most fascinating weeks. Today is Palm Sunday, as we obviously all know already. Um, And we call it Palm Sunday. And actually, um, Worship Leader, I don't remember your name, her name. I think she's downstairs. But she did a great job. Sorry? Naomi, Naomi, thank you. you. Yeah. (laughs) thank you. Um, but Naomi did a great job of explaining, so you're going to hear me say some of what some of what she already kind of talked about, but um, today is Palm Sunday, and this is the day that the Gospels tell us, and we read it. We're going to read the exact same verse that she already read to us earlier in Matthew 21, but this is the day Jesus was welcomed into Jerusalem as king. But today also marks the start, and I don't know how many of you really thought about this before, but it also starts the last week of Jesus's earthly life. So when he rode into town on this particular Sunday, on this particular day, he knew, he was very, very aware that his time on earth was coming to a close later that week. He knew everything that that week would hold. He knew everything that he was walking into. We could say it this way. He knew that the end was near. And here's what I mean when I say, like, the end. He knew the end was near of all that separated humanity from God. He knew that in a week's time, there would no longer be a chasm separating us and God. He knew that death would no longer have the final say. He knew Resurrection Sunday was coming. He knew all of that, but he also knew what was required in order to get there because there is no Resurrection Sunday without there first being a crucifixion on Friday. There is no empty tomb without a bloody cross. And so as he rode into town on this day, at this moment, he knew it was the beginning of the end of so much. But I think, and maybe this is just me, I don't think it is, for many of us, we just like to skip right to Easter Sunday. Like, you know, we, we often think it's just a little too gruesome or terrible to think of all that happened to Jesus later on in the week. Um, we can hardly watch the crucifixion scene, you know, in the Passion of the Christ, and for good reason. I can hardly watch it. It's disturbing. It just feels like too much. It's hard to stomach. We would much rather like to think about just how awesome the day that Easter is. You know, maybe it's, Easter egg hunts or Easter bunnies or, I don't know, chocolate or or the food on Sunday. Like church is great, but the food afterwards with the family, like we're already deciding what desserts we're going to make. We've already got our menu set probably. Like we start thinking, or Easter dress for some people, for me growing up, it was like, what am I going to wear on Easter Sunday? Because my mom and I would always go shopping. The point is, is that almost anything is more palatable to us in thinking about how we get from Palm Sunday to Easter Sunday. All of the in-between, we just kind of, we want to skip from one to the next. And I think that that's a pretty good indicator of the way our culture generally is. Like, we just like things to be a little bit easy. We want things to be as palatable as possible. No discomfort, no tension. We don't really want things to be hard. But what I want to suggest to us today is that I think in order for us to fully grasp the magnitude of the victory of Jesus on Easter Sunday, we need to understand that the road to get there for him was anything but easy. And to help us better understand that we're going to rewind the clock by a week today. And we're going to look at some of the key events that happened in Jesus's life in in the last week of his life. And so if you're a note taker or you just like knowing where we're headed, um, the, t- the message of, uh, or the title of today's message is The Beginning of the End. And here's what I want to do in our time together. We're going to look at two different stories in um, the Gospel of Matthew. And in both of these stories, there is a crowd. It's very likely not the same crowd, probably two different crowds. And we're going to look at how they respond to Jesus. And here's a bit of a spoiler alert. One of them welcomes him and the other one rejects him. And the fascinating thing about it all, like I said a moment ago, is that ultimately he dies for both of them. He knows everything that's gonna happen and he does it anyways. So let's just pray before we start reading our scripture today. Father, thank you for this time together. I thank you for the significance of this day and just kind of what it's launching us into this week. And we are grateful, of course, we are so grateful for the cross and for all that it means and for Resurrection Sunday next week. We're so grateful. I pray that it would not just be another thing for us this this year, that it would land on us in a fresh, new way, that we would once again stand in awe, Jesus, of you. And today we just pause and we say thank you. We say thank you that on this day, over 2,000 years ago, you rode into town knowing full well all that was to come, and you said yes to us anyways. Thank you for loving us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we're going to be in Matthew chapter 21. And Naomi read this uh, verse earlier, but I actually just want to give you a little bit of context before we read this, okay? Um, So Jesus and his disciples have been in the city of Jericho for a little while. And there has been this big old crowd following him. And Jesus has been healing people, and now they are entering into the city of Jerusalem. And as I said a moment ago, Jesus knows why he's there. He knows that his arrival into Jerusalem is going to uh, set off like a chain of events that's ultimately going to lead to his death and resurrection. Um, in fact, if we rewind just by one chapter in Matthew chapter 20, Jesus just straight up tells his disciples, "Listen, guys, this is what's going to happen. We're gonna we're gonna get to Jerusalem. I'm going to be arrested. Uh, I'm going to be condemned." I'm I'm going to be beaten and flogged. I'm going to be crucified. Don't worry. On the third day, I'm going, to, I'm going to be raised back to life. If you know the story, apparently they all forget this because they are all apparently shocked by what happens later in the week. But he knows. So he, he, he's already laid it out. This is exactly play-by-play what is going to happen. So Jesus and his disciples arrive here in Jerusalem. The date was Sunday, March 29th, A.D. 33, Sunday in Jewish culture was also the first day of the week. And it was Passover. And uh, Passover is a feast that lasted about a week. And so here's here's why this is important, because people from all over would come to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. They would, they would make a pilgrimage there with their families to celebrate. And um, so the city was just incredibly crowded, incredibly congested at this time of the year. Uh, scholars estimate that in the city of Jerusalem, around 40,000 people lived there, just like on a on a regular day. That was the population, 40,000 people. But at Passover, the week of Passover, it's estimated that the population would increase six times. So for those of you who are math whizzes, <laughs> I am not. I def- That makes me sound, I don't know, not super smart. But I did definitely use my calculator just to make sure I said it right. It's 240,000 people. That is a lot of people. For your population of a town to go from 40,000 to 40,000 to 240,000 people. That is a lot. And so we need to know that the town was incredibly crowded. There was a whole lot of people there. So Jesus comes into town into a, you know, it's overcrowded, it's bustling, and it's thick with excitement because this is a celebration. People are excited to be here. And so as we know, he sends two of his disciples to go find a donkey and a colt for him to, to ride in on. And there is all sorts of significance attached to this. We just don't have time to get into today. But the main thing we need to know about this is that the reason Jesus did that was to fulfill a prophecy by um, the prophet Zechariah. So they go, they find the donkey and the colt, they bring it to Jesus, and, um, and he gets on it. And so let's begin reading Matthew 21, verse 7. It says, They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest heaven! When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred. Remember, we just talked about how many people were there. The whole city was stirred and asked, who is this? The crowds answered, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Okay, so we're going to move through this a little bit. What's the first thing that happens when Jesus arrives in Jerusalem? Well, he's kind of treated like a rock star. Like he is treated. Well, actually, he's treated more like royalty. Literally, like royalty, because um, he was welcomed in the way that Israelite kings would have been welcomed in previous earlier days of Israel. They would have uh, been welcomed like King Solomon would have been welcomed with the waving of palm branches and the spreading out of cloaks. That was how kings were welcomed. So Jesus was treated like royalty, and. They of course, we just read it in verse uh, 9, that they were going before him and behind him, and they were shouting, Hosanna, which Naomi told us earlier it does. It means, God, save us. And so I want to just consider the response of the crowd, because I think that there's more going on there than we might initially notice. So the first thing, and probably the most obvious thing, is that there was this part of the crowd that welcomed him with, like, amazing joy, right? Right? pretty clear they were worshiping him. And why did they welcome him? Why did they welcome him? That's kind of, whenever I read scripture, I'm just, I'm kind of always asking like, well, why did that happen? Or that's interesting. And what's the deal with this? That's just kind of, that's the way my mind works. And so why did they welcome Jesus? Well, it's because for many of them, they thought, maybe even perhaps for most of them, they welcomed him, or responded at least excitedly to Jesus, because they thought he was the deliverer who would reestablish the Davidic kingdom. And he was, he was, but they thought he was going to do it in a certain kind of a way. They expected that he would overthrow the corrupt Roman government that, was, that, was, um, opp- that they felt oppressed by at this time. They thought that he would come up against Rome and they would, that he would take his place on the throne. And now what most of them didn't understand at the time was obviously God's plan for Jesus's life was much bigger than that. The plan was much, much bigger than just a throne right there in Jerusalem. And Jesus did not just want to deal with the oppression of Rome. He wanted to deal with their oppression to sin. It was a much bigger plan. He wanted to deal with mankind's oppression to sin. And so a lot of the people in this very crowd that were praising him um, would later on in the week have to wrestle through the events that would happen to Jesus whenever he died. Because they thought he had come to overthrow the government. And then he dies, and so then they're wrestling through, well, this is not what we thought this was going to look like. So we could say it this way. Many of them, maybe even including the disciples, had some expectations of what they thought the Messiah ought to be and what he ought to do. And this just got me thinking that I wonder I wonder how many of us maybe even, you know, unknowingly have placed our own expectations on Jesus that have gone unmet. You know, like I thought he would do this or he'd help me with this or you know, he would be this kind of way and he just hasn't been this way in my life. And then we get disappointed. It's an easy thing to do. I mean, I'm sure that I have certainly done it. It's a thing where we just project our wishes or even like our deeply held beliefs onto him. And then when things don't shake out the way that we thought they would, we can start to lose faith or even slip into this dangerous zone of like Um, dismantling or deconstructing our faith in Jesus because he doesn't quite fit into the mold that we had made for him. I'm thinking here of, you know, so many different life circumstances that are so hard when he doesn't heal that child of cancer. When we don't get that job we really need and he knows we need it. When we thought, you know, our life would just flat look different than it does now. We thought we'd be married by now, or we thought we'd have kids by now, or grandkids by now, or whatever the thing is. I was reading an article this week by CT um, Christianity Today, and it just had an interesting little line in there. They said, Jesus was an equal opportunity disappointer. <laughs> Jesus was an equal opportunity disappointer. And listen, uh, it's actually a really great article. The name of the article is Jesus Disappoints Everyone, and you should read it to get the full context, but here's, here's what they were getting at. It's not, Jesus isn't, they called him an equal opportunity disappointer, not because Jesus did anything wrong, but it's because ever since he has shown up on the scene, people have placed their own set of expectations on him and then often end up with some sort of twisted theology when their expectations aren't met because we just get disappointed. And who we think he ought to be. And when it doesn't shake out that way, we're just like, well, I guess you're not who I thought you were. And I don't know if I want to have faith in you anymore. So while these people in the crowd were worshiping Jesus, which was obviously, that was the right, that was the right response Many of them were going to have to grapple through the reality of who Jesus truly was a week later because it didn't fit into many of their molds. But in the meantime, I do want to acknowledge, like, obviously, here they are. They're worshiping. They're, they're praising him with their palm branches, and it's beautiful. Now, there's a second group in this crowd that I want to consider. So the, here's the people. They're worshiping, and the response of the worshiping crowd leads to wonder in another group there. I don't know if you noticed in verse 10, but there were outliers who were just kind of, they were there, right? Super crowded city. They're watching all these people worshiping Jesus. And so there's people who were like, what, who is this? Like, who, what is happening? Who is this guy? They had FOMO. I don't, okay, I don't know if everybody here knows what FOMO is. If you don't know what FOMO is, you have it right now. <laughs> FOMO is an acronym. It means a fear of missing out. Anytime you're like, wait, what's happening? Like, And so if you don't know what FOMO, or you didn't know what that stood for, you were like, wait, what? (laughs) I want to know what that means. But these people, they had FOMO. They're like, they're in town. Here's this guy. Everybody seems to know who he is. And they're like, wait, what's going on? Um, You know, this has probably happened to many of you where you have easy thing to be in Vancouver on any given day, any day of the week. And all of a sudden, there's just like a street is shut down and there's people marching down and you're like, wait, what's, what's going on? This, um, this happened to me and my kids not, not super long ago. We were downtown and, um, we were kind of higher up in a building and all of a sudden you could just hear it down below. Like this, it it wasn't a parade, but we thought it was. And just tons of people in the street, there were police escorts. And of course, like everybody that we were in this building with just right to the windows. We're all looking, everybody's got their phones out Googling, like what is going on, who's here? Is this, like, you know, what is going on on the street down below? Because we all, you know, it's like oh, what? There's, there's a crowd. We wanna know what is going on. And so this is kind of what's happening in this situation. It's an overcrowded Jerusalem. A lot of people know who he is, and they're worshiping. And so the people, that, the worship in the people leads to everybody else kind of wondering, well, what is going on here? And they want to know. And I don't want to spend as much time talking about this group, but I do want to say I think that it's interesting that the people's worship of Jesus causes other people to get curious about him. And I wanna to suggest to us today, just really simply, that when we have a genuine encounter with Jesus, when we have a real revelation about who he is and it impacts us so deeply, others are inevitably impacted. It's contagious. We aren't shy about him, it just kinda of leaks out of us. It changes our conversations. It changes uh, the way that we interact with people. It changes the way that, or it should change the way that we treat people. It changes the way that we parent. It changes the way um, that we, like, our work ethic. It changes our relationships. And it should cause the people around us to wonder, like, man, what is happening in your life that's that's making you act this way? Like, it's attractive. It's attractive to others. That's just a little side note. Um, about that whole, yeah, the people who are worshiping causes the people to wonder. I just thought that was such a beautiful little, um, you know, side lesson that we could learn from this bigger narrative. So there's this part of the crowd who's worshiping. There's this part of the crowd who's now wondering who Jesus is. And now there's actually a third part a third group in this crowd that Matthew's gospel doesn't tell us about, but I did want to bring it up. We actually read about this group in um, Luke's story of this, or Luke's account of this story. We're not going to turn there, um, but here's what we need to know. Um, in Luke chapter 19, exact same version of this story, but then Luke tells us that there were actually Pharisees in the crowd, and they are angry. They're mad about what is going on, and so they say, they see all the people waving the palm branches and doing the cloaks, and they say to Jesus, hey, you need to tell your people to stop. Rebuke your people, they tell Jesus, and Jesus responds, hey, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. Jesus was, in other words, saying, I'm not going to stop them. Like, he was approving their worship of him. So, this is like a mixed bag in this crowd. We've got some who are worshiping. We've got some who are wondering, like, what is going on. And then we've got this third group over here of Pharisees who are going to show up in the next story as well. But the the Pharisees over here who are just angry about the whole thing. They're angry Jesus is there. They're angry people are following him. They're angry people are worshiping him, and they want him to tell them to stop making a scene. And they are just indignant about the whole thing. So. There's a lot going on in this first crowd, okay? Now we're going to flip over to Matthew chapter 27. I told you that we're going to look at two different crowds. This is the second crowd. And this takes place a few days later, later in the week. We're going to start reading in verse 15. In verse 15, but again, let me just give us a little bit of context on what it is we're going to read, okay? So now... Palm Sunday is over, it's been a few days since that awesome experience of, of everybody worshiping Jesus where everyone's welcomed him like a king. And now the climate in Jerusalem, in the city, has drastically changed. Um, Jesus has been betrayed and arrested by this point in the story. His disciples have all deserted, deserted him, they've all fled. And now he's been brought before Pilate, the Roman governor. And so let's begin reading Matthew 27, we're gonna read verses 15 through 26, just stick with me. Okay, now it was the governor's custom at the festival to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. At that time, they had a well-known prisoner whose name was Jesus Barabbas, we know him as Barabbas. So when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked them, which one do you want me to release to you, Jesus Barabbas or Jesus who is called the Messiah? What shall I do then with Jesus, who is called the Messiah, Pilate asked. They all answered, crucify him. Why? What crime has he committed, asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that instead an uproar was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. I am innocent of this man's blood, he said. It is your responsibility. All the people answered, His blood is on us and on our children. Then he released Barabbas to them, but he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. So I want to talk about this crowd now. There's a little less to say about this, but I think it's probably obvious to most of us that there was just a very deep-seated resentment of Jesus in this crowd. The people wanted him to be crucified. And it begins uh, among the chief priests and the elders. Um, The Pharisees were there as well. And what ends up happening is they persuade the crowd in this direction. And their resentment of Jesus ultimately led to their rejection of him. Actually, they didn't just reject him, but they chose somebody else. They chose Barabbas over Jesus. And their resentment ends up fueling their rage because you saw that Pilate, or I hope you noticed that Pilate was like, things are things are turning into an uproar now. He was trying to just calm the thing down, and so this resentment fueled rage. And in verse twenty-three, actually, where it says that they shouted, "Crucify him." That word "shouted" it's the Greek word "krazo," k-r-a-z-o. That sounds a lot like our English word for crazy. It's not, but it's kind of funny that they're similar. It's the Greek word krazo, and it's a word that means to scream or to shriek. Like they, they were not just subtly like, hey, crucify. I mean, they were shrieking it. They were just imagine, like, and Pilate talks about it, like they were on the verge of an uproar. There was passion and emotion behind this, they were blind with rage. Um, I brought a chart, like, I think that we have the um, little chart thing ready to go. Sort of a chart, maybe, to show you. Here we go. That's great. Thank you. Thank you so much. Okay. So these are the two different crowds, and I just wanted to put them side by side to kind of help us see the difference. So we've got the welcoming crowd, and the welcoming crowd is shouting something. They're shouting Hosanna. We have the rejecting crowd here in Matthew 27. They're also shouting but they're shouting crucify him. Now in the welcoming crowd, their worship, the worship of the crowd ends up leading to wonder in others. It impacts others around them. In the rejecting crowd, the resentment of the leaders and the Pharisees, that ends up impacting the crowd around them and it fuels rage among the crowd. It fuels rage. And so as I look at this, like as I was just kind of making this earlier this week and parsing through this story, I wonder what goes on in our hearts when we see something like that, when we see the difference between a welcoming crowd and a rejecting crowd. Because if you're anything like me, you look at that and you're like, well, oh. I know which one I'm in. <laughs> I know the column I fit in. Obviously, I'm in the welcoming crowd. <laughs> like, that is, I would I would have been, you know, I would have had the biggest palm branch probably. <laughs> like, maybe not. But we identify ourselves with the celebrating crowd, and we kind of, you know, remove ourselves from the crucifying crowd. We all like to think, I mean, and not just in this story, but it tends to be human nature to read stories in the Bible, and we're like, like I think I was, I would have been the good guy in that story. I probably would have been David. <laughs> like you know, like you 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 think of yourself as I'm never the the Goliath in the story. I'm always the David. Like you always want to be on the good side of the story, and it's no different here. And so when we think about Palm Sunday, a day like today, we're like, you know, I I I like to think that I would have been there, waving my cloak and my branch, or not waving my cloak, laying my cloak down on the ground and waving my palm branch. Like, I like to think that that's who I would have been. But if we know the whole story of this week in Jesus' life, we know that even those closest to him, his closest friends, his disciples, who were in that first crowd, by the way, they were in the welcoming, worshiping crowd, they desert him. They leave him. One of them betrayed him, one of them denied him, and the others scattered so fast that day, they may have had whiplash, like they were out of there, gone. If we were in a liturgical church setting today, which is like um, the Episcopal Church or a Lutheran Church, I don't know how many of you were raised that way, so you may have some experience with this. But we not only would have waved our palm branches around and shouted, we would have actually been invited to read the passage and join with the crowd and shout, Hosanna, like we would have read that all out together and and done that. Not only would we have been invited to play the part of the welcoming crowd, we would have also been invited to play the part of the rejecting crowd we would have all together read this second story. And when it gets to the point in the gospel where the crowd yells, crucify him, we would have all done that together. We would have been asked to read it out loud together. Now, I wasn't raised in a liturgical setting like this. But as I've been learning about this, something about me kind of makes me wish I had at least experienced it. In fact, I have a goal. Like on one Palm Sunday, I want to go to a liturgical church and just experience this. It's very uncomfortable to think about. To one moment be invited to rejoice over Jesus, which probably feels pretty natural to us. It's an easier thing to do. But then the next moment to be asked to yell as the crowds did, crucify him. Makes my hair stand on end. Like, could I Could I do it? Is there going to be something in me that makes me go, ooh, I actually just can't do it? But here's the thing. The reason that liturgical churches do this is that so their people remember that we all have a little bit of both crowds in us, as much as we don't like to think about that. But there are times that we embrace Jesus as Lord of our lives, and there are other times where we would deny him just by the way we live. Other times when we disobey him. There are times when we just want everything to do with him and then there are other times when we just want to do things our own way. Which is ultimately rejection of him as Lord over every area of our lives. Some days we're like, oh, there's no no one besides you, Lord. No idols but you. you. you we have nothing besides you. And then the next day, you know, we have the idols of food or social media or whatever the thing is. And the reason I've wanted to spend so much time today just kind of sorting through these crowds and slowly moving through the response of these different crowds is not just to, like, make ourselves feel bad and, like, you know, end on focusing on ourselves. I wanted to spend the time doing this today because it is just incredible to me It's incredible to me that Jesus came into this bustling, busy town, and he knew what was waiting for him. He knew all the different peoples and all the different perspectives of those who would be there. He knew that there would be those who would shout, Hosanna, and there would be those who only a few days later would shout, crucify him. He knew that though he was surrounded by many in approval on the first day, he would be alone and despised towards the end of that week. He knew that there would be those who would welcome him and there would be those who would reject him. And he knew that this was not only true of the people in the city that week, but that it would be true of every generation that would follow, including ours. And still he came. He rode into town determined to fulfill his mission. I'm convinced that he was unflattered by the cheering crowd, although he could have been, and undistracted by the rejecting crowd. He just kept walking toward the cross that week. He stayed the course, it was not easy, it was hard. And he pushed through because he knew that this was the necessary beginning of the end. Sunday was coming. Victory was inevitable. Death would lose, and God's wrath would finally and fully be satisfied. And Jesus said yes. But it started here, over 2,000 years ago on this day, with a huge crowd and the waving of palm branches, the laying down of cloaks and the shouting of Hosanna before a king. I actually want to call the worship team up now just as we begin to close. Um, as we go this week, as you go, just in your day-to-day ordinary life, I just want to encourage you. I don't know what your normal routine looks like, so I don't want to presume. I'm not a, I'm not a pastor here. I don't know what you guys are kind of doing in your own personal um time with the Lord each day. But if I could encourage you, if you're not doing anything, to spend your time this week each day reading through the last week of Jesus' life. I think it will, help hit. it will help you, all of us, next Sunday. It was just going to hit in a different kind of a way. It'll help us enter into the Easter story, just going through this last week of Jesus' life. And I actually just want to read one more thing to us from the book of Revelation This morning, we've kind of done a few different flashbacks. Now I want to do a flash forward. Um, This is a promise that we're about to read. It's a promise that one day we will, for those of us who are followers of Jesus, one day we will be part of yet another crowd. And we will once again find ourselves palm branches in, in hand, crying out, And this is Revelation chapter 7, beginning in verse 9. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice. Let's just say this part together, if you can read it. Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. That will be us one day. We will do this again. We will be part of yet another crowd, and it will be beautiful. Amen.